McGahee, the play-by-play announcer for the Colorado Avalanche as they, what was that? Drank what was in the fountain coming down the mountain? I don't know. That was, that was a decent line there. My God, I I have never been more thankful for Dan Duva than <laughs> I am in that moment right there. If that's what I had to listen to on the play-by-play call for my team, I think I would rather not. I think you'd be pumped, wouldn't you? I think when he first goes Walt Whitman, uh, fun, <laughs> oh, captain, my captain. And then the second one with leave the puck and take the cannoli, that's the most forced Godfather reference I've ever heard and doesn't make any sense to the moment. No one's tuning in to hear your funny movie calls. I don't know. I just like that he rhymed fountain and mountain. Whoa. Hey, when when Randy Muller used to do the Panthers game, when they sucked, the only reason you tuned in was because he would you know, crowbar in movie references into his goal calls. Anyway, good job, Dan Duva. <laughs> so what is, I think, the most amazing part about the Golden Knights Avalanche series so far is that Robin Leonard had one of the worst games he's probably ever played, but one of the worst games he's played in a Golden Knights jersey. And it's like a footnote Thanks to Ryan Reeves, and thanks to the fact that they got destroyed in pretty much every aspect of that game. But I will ask you this. In hindsight, it's easy to make this decision, but should Pete DeBoer have started Robin Leonard in game one? I have 12 million reasons why he should have. (laughs) If Bill Foley's master plan was we're going to keep two goaltenders, and we are going to have the best goaltending tandem in the NHL, then Pete DeBoer should have had no hesitation to put Robin Leonard out there in game one. Now, you know, uh, we we know that Robin Leonard can be a slow starter to a game, but a slow starter to the point where that's the first goal that goes in was pretty brutal for the Golden Knights. So I agree with Ed Graney in the column that he wrote and said Robin Leonard's not the reason that the Golden Knights lost that game, but he's up there on the top, toward the top of the list. Yeah, I mean, had the rest of the team actually played well, they don't win that game, and we are talking about it being Robin Leonard's fault. But, I mean, if 
if they start flurry, it's what four, five to one instead of seven to one. Like it's it's not really much of a difference if flurry's in there and flurry has a good game. The the one thing that I find interesting on playing Robin Leonard in that game is is the reasoning that Pete DeBoer gave in terms of rest and the idea that Mark Andre Flurry had just played all seven games of the series against Minnesota and the idea that uh, because they have two days off between one and two, that Flurry would get four full days off before playing again. And the reason I find that interesting is the entire argument the Golden Knights made during or before the season and then during the regular season about why it was okay to pay two goalies $12 million combined was that they were going to be able to keep both of them fresh throughout the regular season. And to compare it to the NBA, it was effectively a way for them to load manage their goaltenders throughout the regular season. And to keep with that NBA comparison, you don't load manage in the playoffs. And the idea that Flurry needed rest in the playoffs kind of defeats the purpose of, hey, Flurry got rest in the regular season because you get the rest in the regular season so you can play in the playoffs. But yet, I think you saw that the rest that Marc-Andre Flurry got during the regular season is the reason that he's a Vezina finalist. I, I, I don't know that at this point of Marc-Andre Flurry's career that I disagree with the reasoning all that much, although I guess you can look two years back when Marc-Andre Fleury was playing every game and we were sitting here saying, hey, would you mind just letting Malcolm Subban see the light of day every now and then? <laughs> um, you know, we were saying, well, you can't run Marc-Andre Fleury into the ground. Well, they didn't run Marc-Andre Fleury into the ground. The only part of it I would necessarily, uh, would not necessarily agree with is that it's not like the Carolina-Nashville series where there were multiple double overtime games. Like, the Golden Knights in the wild played in regulation the entire series. So I don't know that I see that, but the logic for me in saying we have $12 million of goaltenders, Robin Leonard should be able to cover one game for us the same way Marc-Andre Fleury covered one game in the bubble last year. Then yeah, I, I think it should have been all right. Right. Like to me, the, the logic behind it was a little curious given what they said in the regular season, but the actual decision, like, I have no problem. With it. Like in hindsight, it's easy to say Leonard shouldn't have played because of how bad he was, but like, Robin Leonard has been a very good goalie for like three seasons now. Like he's been one of the top 15 in the sport for three seasons. Now there is an expectation that Robin Leonard will be a good goaltender if you put him in a playoff game. And so it's not even like, Oh, we're trying to get away with it. We're trying to rest flurry. It's okay. We're going to rest flurry and play one of the other 15 best goalies in the sport. Like, that's a good decision if you're the Golden Knights. Like it's not a it's not a bad decision that should cost you the game. And again, it didn't cost them the game because they were so bad in literally every facet of the game. But had the Golden Knights actually played well, we would be talking about Robin Leonard having cost them the game. And I mean, basically, Ryan Reeves and the rest of the team play kind of saved Pete DeBoer and Robin Leonard from just a boatload of criticism over the last two or three days. Yeah, because any game in which a goaltender allows two soft goals, and that would be my argument, was that there were two goals that Robin Leonard let in that he should not have let in. Um, they can fade away when there are five others that are scored. <laughs> if they lose the game two to one, then you're saying, oh, you let in two soft goals and, and we lost two to one or three to two or whatever, you know, whatever the case might be. So, no, I mean, like, Look, the Golden Knights were terrible last night or on uh, on Sunday, and the, the, Ed's right; they're not going to play that poorly again. But at the same time, what it highlighted for me is that there is a talent gap between these teams, and if the Golden Knights don't do everything right, that talent gap will be obvious in every game. 
the Avalanche were favored before this series. The Avalanche are viewed as a better team than the Golden Knights. But when this series is over, do you think we're looking back on it and saying like, wow, Colorado was just simply too good and the Golden Knights aren't particularly close to the Avalanche? Or are we saying, oh, the Avalanche, are, they're, they're almost there. They're pretty close. They almost could take out Colorado. I think in the end, when we look back at this series, um, as I said, uh, you know I have a bet on the Golden Knights. It was based on the value of the number. I do think Colorado probably ends up winning this series. And the biggest gap between these two teams right now is in two places. One, their top line is more talented than any other top line in the sport. And that's not a Golden Knights flaw. That's just the Colorado Avalanche have the guy who probably is the best player in the world. And then they're playing two world-class players along with him. Um, but the other thing is on the Golden Knights. And look, at some point, we are probably going to have a serious discussion about the merits of the Alex Petrangelo signing in terms of what it did to the rest of the roster and the salary cap hell that the Golden Knights went into all season long to try to make oh. this work. And the fact of the matter is Alex Petrangelo has not had a good first season and Alex Petrangelo has been largely a non-factor in the playoffs thus far. And if you're going to mortgage your cap and mortgage your future in a lot of ways, based on the idea that Alex Petrangelo is a significant upgrade over Nate Schmidt, we haven't seen it. Oh, you weren't on the show last week when I when I declared the Alex Petrangelo acquisition is the worst transaction in team history. Okay. Um, well, then other people have said it, but we are still going to be talking about it. <laughs> like we're still going to come into the off season and say to, to expound to expound upon it. The reason is, you look at the Colorado Avalanche on the blue line, and Kale McCarr is the best defenseman in this series, and Taze and Gerard are not all that far behind. Uh, right now, Tyler, let's do it this way. If you were starting a hockey team from scratch, and you were to take the five best defensemen in this series, those three plus, in theory, Petrangelo and Theodore, you're probably taking all of the Colorado defensemen first, aren't you? If it's based on what they've done in the playoffs, there's no doubt about it. If it's based on, like, if we went back to maybe before the season started, uh, McCars won, and then you probably start throwing in Petrangelo to argue there. But what we've actually seen this year, and specifically these two, well, one playoff series in one game, yeah, Theodore's been non-existent. Petrangelo, what's he got? Three assists in eight games, but he's been a, a non-factor as well. Like, the Golden Knights thought they had two of the top, what, 15 defensemen in the NHL and Theodore and Petrangelo coming into this year. And in the playoffs so far, neither one of them has done a thing. Like, we have not had a, like, well, Petrangelo gave a game away in overtime against Minnesota, so that happened. But other than that, they haven't really done anything positive. And instead, we're talking about, oh, the Avalanche have those guys. Like, we thought the Golden Knights had those guys, but it doesn't look like they do. No, it doesn't at all. And... <laughs> I'm not going to overblow one moment in terms of who this player is, what this signing is. I'm just going to tell you that back to the Tahoe game and the oh boy with McKinnon coming down the right side and firing that thing into the net, it just sits very, very poorly with me for a guy who is making the money that Alex Petrangelo is because the only other player on the roster making that money is Mark Stone. And can you imagine what we would be saying about Mark Stone, the captain of the Golden Knights, if another player were coming toward him, Mark Stone went, oh boy. 
Right. There's a, Stone and Petrangelo are supposed to be the guys that stop the old boy. They're supposed they're here because, oh, we need to stop McKinnon or at some point, if he ever wins a playoff series, McDavid, like that's why they're here. And for them to not be able to do it. And at the same time, Mark Stone, I think, has played uh, 11 straight periods without recording a point now. Like, where's Mark Stone? Like, I think you can throw him in this conversation, too, in terms of star players, high-paid players that are just not performing while we're talking about the other team star players being, like, dominant and unstoppable. Like, that's supposed to be Mark Stone, too. Like, we know he's not as good as McKinnon, but are we going to have a Mark Stone moment anytime soon of, oh, yeah, that's the best player on this team. He can actually help a team win a game because we haven't seen well, that I mean, in a we long did, time either. No, I mean, a long time relative to the playoffs. Yeah. He did it in the middle of the Minnesota series. Um, and you want to see your star players do it more than the one moment you can point to in the, you know, in the middle of the Minnesota series. But at the same time, when it comes to Mark Stone, if we're going to take both ends of the ice, Mark Stone defensively has been outstanding. Uh, I'm not going to drag Mark Stone for that part. The problem is for Alex Petrangelo, if you're going to say he has three points in eight games and a giveaway that lost a game, then he hasn't been good enough at either end of the ice. Yeah. All right. Coming up next, we are going to jump into Bischoff's briefs because Bryce Hamilton is coming back to UNLV. Bischoff's briefs. I'm afraid we need to use math. Bischoff's briefs. I knew I should have checked your showboating globetrotter algebra. Bischoff's Briefs. Man, I thought you knew that algebra was all razzmatazz. Bischoff's Briefs. Yes, I see. Something involving that many big words could easily destabilize time itself. Bryce Hamilton is coming back to UNLV. UNLV is getting its leading score from the last two years back, but I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not. And it mainly stems from, we don't know how good the roster is. So first on Hamilton, we do know what he is on the plus side. He is a guy that can create his own shot pretty much at any time in a shot clock and an offensive possession That is a valuable skill. We especially saw that last season where the roster was pretty poorly constructed and nobody else could get their own shot. You knew Bryce Hamilton could go get a shot. But the negative side of Hamilton is that the shot he creates is almost always a mid-range jumper. Nearly 50% of his shots last year were from the mid-range. He doesn't get to the rim consistently. And in his career, he's a below-average three-point shooter at 32%. So... The shot he does creates the least efficient in basketball. And even though he's he's actually a good mid-range shooter, the national average on mid-range jumpers is 37%. He actually made 43% last year from the mid-range. The problem is, is the problem with mid-range jumpers. It's why they're being phased out of the game. A 43% mid-range jump shooter is the same points per shot as a 29% three-point shooter. So bad three-point shooter better than one of the best mid-range jumpers in the country. You look at last year in Bryce Hamilton, though, um, there were 76 players in the country that took at least 30% of their team shots. Hamilton ranks 72nd in offensive rating, bottom five in offensive rating. He was a high volume, low efficiency player with an offensive rating of 97. Back in Otzelberger's first year, Hamilton was much better. His offensive rating was 104. That's still only ranked 22nd out of 56 players that took 30% of their shots that year. 
and that appears to be Hamilton's ceiling. If there are other offensive playmakers like that season, they had Elijah Mitchell Long and Amori Hardy guys that could create a shot. Hamilton can be a high volume, mid level efficiency player. The problem is that's not good enough if you are going to put out an NCAA tournament team, if you are going to compete for a Mountain West title. And that's what brings us back to the current roster and honestly, your expectations for this next season. If Kevin Kruger put together a bad roster, right? If none of the guys he brought in are good offensively, then Hamilton coming back is a good thing. And it's going to be big for this team because again, he can create a shot. And if the roster has a bunch of guys that can't create their own offense, they're going to need Hamilton to do that because a mid-range jumper is still better than a turnover. A mid-range jumper is still better than a lot of bad possessions that UNLV had last season. But if Kevin Kruger did a good job with the roster, and if UNLV has any chance of competing in this conference, and if UNLV has any chance of being an NCAA tournament-level team, Bryce Hamilton's going to be unnecessary because if that happens, then you're looking at a guy like Michael Nuga, who scored 17 points per game at Kent state. His offensive rating last year was 125 while taking 25% of Kent state shots, right? You're looking at that guy, Michael Nuga being a high volume, closer to high efficiency player or a Justin Webster who's coming from Hawaii. He took 17% of their shots last year. His offensive rating was 117. You're looking at those two guys, maybe a Donovan Williams who's coming from Texas and gets a bigger role. Maybe a Josh Baker who's coming from junior college and, and is this translate well at the Mount West level. Maybe it's Jordan McCabe who's coming from West Virginia. Like there are other guys on this team that if they work out offensively, if you have two or even three of those guys that can create their own shot and do it at a above average efficiency. There's no need for Bryce Hamilton on this team because he doesn't provide you value without the ball in his hands. He doesn't shoot well enough to be a floor spacer. He's below average on defense. So to me, I don't know if Hamilton coming back is ultimately a good thing or not, because I don't know how good this roster is. And I don't think we'll know until late December, early January, when we've gotten to see 10, 15, close to 20 games of this team to make a determination, okay, Michael Nuga shouldn't be taking 15 shots a game, or, oh, Michael Nuga's awesome. They don't need Bryce Hamilton shooting so much. So Hamilton's back. I view it more as a safety net for UNLV in case the roster isn't actually any good, but I'm a little worried that even if the roster is good, Kevin Kruger's still going to hand the keys over to Bryce Hamilton and make him the number one part of this offense. I did enjoy that little bit of technically correct with Tyler Bischoff. So uh, now I think you're overthinking this massively uh, when it comes to Bryce Hamilton because first year for Bryce Hamilton, he's a true freshman playing 13 minutes per game for Marvin Menzies, who no one has mistaken for a great offensive coach along the road. Second year, he's in his first year in Otzelberger's system. And yeah, the efficiency wasn't great. The numbers were there in the end to have 16 points a game from the kid in 27 minutes is, is respectable. The volume that it took to get there wasn't great. Last year, he was expected to play point guard for most of the season on a team where, as you referenced, there were literally zero other players on that team. And it's hard to do in Division One college basketball to have zero other players who can get their own shot. Uh, notably including and absolutely David Jenkins. So now when you look at Bryce Hamilton and say, okay, you have all of these players coming in, theoretically at least a few, who can create their own shot, I think it's much more about how Kevin Kruger chooses to use Bryce Hamilton than 
do you bring Bryce Hamilton back at all? I don't think there's any way he ends up being redundant uh, for, for what you're saying. And I also think that when you see Bryce Hamilton potentially as a number two, number three guy, then you can make that work. Now, the question, of course, is, is someone who tested the waters for the NBA draft going to be willing to see himself that way? Well, I have to believe he wouldn't be coming back to UNLV if Kevin Kruger had promised him you're going to have the ball in your hands at a 30 or 35 percent usage rate. And that to me is is the problem. Like if that's what Kevin Kruger ultimately does, like okay, I, Kevin Kruger should bring Bryce Hamilton back. I, that nothing I said should to take that away. Hamilton wants to come back. You absolutely have him come back because you know what he is. To me, it is again. What is his role when he does come back? Because again, if we get into the season and like you said, if if they do have another guy or two guys that can create their own shot, and if it's Michael Nuga and he is uh, efficient. What are you doing with Bryce Hamilton? Is Bryce Hamilton still the number one guy on this offense, even though it becomes clear he should not be the number one option on this offense? That's what I'm fascinated to find out because I think there's a chance we're having a legitimate conversation in early January about why is Bryce Hamilton shooting so much when other guys are better? Like, I think we're having that conversation in January, and that's something that that's not a good thing to have if you have a guy taking a lot of shots when he's less efficient than better players then if that's the case, then a lot of other things have failed also for UNLV. Don't you agree? Because if Bryce Hamilton is taking too many shots, that means a couple of things. One, it means you probably don't have a point guard distributing the ball all that well. It means that you are not improving on what was the glaring weakness of last year's UNLV basketball team. Secondly, it probably means you also don't have outside shooting. Because if Bryce Hamilton is taking all of those mid-range jumpers, it's likely because a team can collapse on him and bring help because they don't respect the outside shooting that UNLV has. So if you can fix either of those things, if more of Bryce Hamilton's drives are going to end up at the rim, or if you have a point guard when he sees Bryce clang three in a row who says, yeah, I'm going to the other side of the court this time, then I think you can make Bryce Hamilton's role be whatever you need it to be. Yeah, it's... It... It's a big test for Kevin Kruger, and it's an interesting test. It was going to be interesting because of the amount of roster turnover they had anyways, but now basically working Hamilton into this roster is going to be fascinating because, I mean, last year, once we got halfway into the season, it was pretty obvious, okay, their best bet is just to let Hamilton do whatever he can possibly do because nothing else was any good. But next year, I mean, you're, you're hopeful that there's something better than Bryce Hamilton because at the end of the day, like, here, here's my main thing on Hamilton. At the end of the day, I feel pretty confident saying if Bryce Hamilton is your best offensive player, you are not going to the NCAA tournament. That's it, that you, he, There's a ceiling there, and Hamilton is not good enough to be your best offensive player. So do we get into the season and other guys are better than Hamilton is going to be the key to whether or not this first year is is better than the last eight of UNLV basketball? And, and listen, you might be listening to this as a UNLV fan and thinking, well, I don't expect them to go to the NCAA tournament, so bring on Bryce Hamilton, and that's perfectly fine. I don't think the expectation should be in see a tournament next year either, but that is still ultimately the goal of every team, and when you bring in a bunch of transfers as a coach, you're not really bringing in guys and saying we're rebuilding for two years. You're kind of saying the goal is to go for it right now. Bryce Hamilton, the jump shooter, cannot be the best offensive player on your team, but a well-balanced team in which Bryce Hamilton is willing to go all the way to the rim more often, and if he finds trouble, has shooters who can make other teams pay for collapsing, then I think Bryce Hamilton can be, let's say, one of the two best offensive players on your team. 
But I don't think that Bryce Hamilton, given the ball at the end of the shot clock, when nothing else has worked, when you've swung it around the perimeter seven times and you hand it to Bryce Hamilton with 10 left on the shot clock at the point and say, hey, go create something, that won't work. The problem with your best case scenario there with Hamilton is like the number two with guys to pass to and get to the rim. We haven't seen him do it. Like those are still big ifs. He, he, there were, it, no, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, there, I agree. There were a couple of games last year where he had some good passing games, good uh, numbers in terms of assists, but it kind of fe- it kind of went away towards the end of the season as well. And even back in his first year, he never really did. It was Hamilton and Hardy and even Coleman some that did, uh, or excuse me, Elijah Mitchell Long, Hardy and Coleman that did a lot of the the movement. And Hamilton was just the reciprocator of, oh, I get the ball and I score now. So right. we haven't seen him do that. Even getting to the rim. He's been a below average finisher at the rim. He's, I think it was at 56% last year, and the average is uh, 59 or 60%. So even getting the rim, he's been below average in his career. So those are two ifs we still need to see from Hamilton. But, I mean, yes, if he can get to the rim and he can distribute, then absolutely that's a great player. We just haven't seen him do that. I Look, I think he can, but I think the thing is, you just talk about his ability to finish in the paint. If I were any other coach in the Mountain West going against last year's UNLV team, I would have said the floor is lava outside the key. Do not step anywhere beyond that area because there was not a single shooter on that team worth respecting at that level. So you're right. You are extrapolating a lot of pieces of Bryce Hamilton's game to say he can be that person. I'm willing to say that because I think Bryce Hamilton has that level of talent. All right. Coming up next, Mike Ramallah joins us from vacation. He's never seen a steak that is too gray. He once ate half a box of Cheez-Its for lunch and finished off the other half for dinner. He has eaten exactly one taco in his life. He is Mike Grillmala. Have tacos changed that much since I tried one? Mike, you know you can say no if you're on vacation when I ask you to come on the show, right? I would never turn you down, Tyler. <laughs> Are you just back home? Anything, yeah, yeah. I came to visit my parents for a little bit. Then I'm heading up to Maine for a wedding, and I got a whole thing planned. But oh. I, I'll always make time for you. All right, important question. People in Massachusetts, is Maine the place to go to get married? Uh, I don't. It's my first experience oh. up there with someone getting up there, but it is kind of like a, uh, I think so. It's a like an old barn and it's like Instagram worthy. I think it's one of those kind of weddings. Yeah. I mean, I've, so, um, I've never been to Maine. I know nothing about it other than it sounds like it's always fall and would be picturesque for a wedding. Yeah. I think that's the idea. Okay. Uh, hold on. M- Mike, you said, you said there's a whole thing planned. What is the whole thing that's <laughs> planned? What do you mean? Well, you said you're visiting your parents and you're going to go up to Maine. You're going to a wedding. There's a whole thing you got going on. So what else do you have yeah, planned? That's, that's the whole thing. That's a lot for me. Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. I, 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 I thought. If, 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 yeah, if it was up to me, I would do absolutely nothing. But a wedding is a whole thing. So, like, that's that's the thing. Is that Lucas in the background? Yeah, I'm kind of like moving away from him. So, I'm trying to like drown him out, hopefully. But you let me know if uh, the reception goes in or out. I mean, you can go get Lucas. It's fine. Yeah. We're okay with Lucas being a part of the radio interview. No, I mean, I'd also like a little vacation away from my dog as well. <sighs> so, this is brutal. This is good. Brutal. You're going to pass Cassie Soto as our worst dog parent with those types of comments. No way. Just I, don't, don't, I don't think that's possible. Just don't tell us you lock your dog in a closet. Um, all right. Some UNLV basketball news. Bryce Hamilton's coming back. Um, 
I'm going to assume you've read my hot takes on Bryce Hamilton at the offensive dot Vegas. What do you make of Hamilton coming back? Is this great news for UNLV basketball? Yeah, it's, it's good news. I think that the, the coaches were kind of cautiously optimistic the whole time. I know that I just assumed he was gone, um, especially when he put his name in the, in the transfer portal as well after declaring for the draft. Like, I don't think either of us expected him to stay in the draft. Um, he wasn't going to get good feedback from the NBA people. We knew that. But I kind of just figured he was you know, following everyone else out the door. So to get a back, a, you know, a proven scorer, someone that you can pencil in and he'll give you 15 points a game and you know someone who can at least do something with the ball and he, he brings you know skills yeah I think they're they're very glad to have him back you saw them keep roster spots open they were this is what the coaches were hoping for so yeah that's that's big for them we spent the last few minutes talking about Bryce Hamilton's efficiency or lack thereof and how he fits into what Kevin Kruger wants to do. I, I think Bryce Hamilton has the talent to, you know, to expand his skill set and maybe be able to create and distribute a little bit more. But how do you think Kevin Kruger wants to use Bryce Hamilton? I think the idea, I think if you're counting on Bryce Hamilton to become a, a three point threat, that's probably not the, the best way to go. I think that's a, a mistake TJ Otzenberger made was he just sort of assumed like Bryce will, he'll come back for the, his junior year and he'll be a better three-point shooter and he'll do this and it just didn't happen. I think at this point he kind of, at the college level at least, he is what he is and that's still a very, very good, very useful player. Um, I think Kevin Kruger has said a few times, you know, his plan on offense is to, he wants a bunch of guards out there who can sort of execute dribble handoffs. They all, he wants them all to be able to get downhill off the dribble. He wants them all to be able to dribble into the paint and collapse the defense and that's the, the number one uh, objective on every possession, and that's something that you know Bryce can do. He can dribble the ball. Um, not he's not so much of a you know turn the shoulder and get downhill with quickness. He's more of a you know I'm going to turn my back to you. I'm going to use footwork. I'm going to sort of back my way into the paint. But he can still force the defense to. He's going to force you to help, and that's where the the issues start for him. Because then the question is, how can what's the pass that he's going to make to really start your offense and really put the defense in rotation. So um, I wouldn't expect him to become a, a three-point shooter this season, but I do think they've got to work with him to make that initial pass. Get into the paint, make that first pass, put the defense in rotation. You have done a few player breakdowns so far. What would be your best guess as to are any of these guys going to be better offensively than Bryce Hamilton is? You know, it's, it's tough. You know, Mike Nuga from uh, coming over from Kent State, he's, a, he's, he's got some uh, – he can really get to the rim and he can shoot the three. That's, you know, what sort of what Kevin Kruger is looking for. He wants the guard that can get his shoulder below the defense and get all the way to the rim and also spread the floor. I like Nuga, what I saw of him. Um, I think if you put him and Hamilton together, they can probably complement each other enough that you're – you know, you'll get enough scoring from your backcourt. Remember when all the, the, the players left and, you know, they first started, you and all these first started bringing in transfers and it was, you know, non-scorers and it was big men. We were sort of asking, where is the scoring punch going to come from? Who's going to put the ball in the basket? Who's going to handle the ball? Um, but I think they're good in that regard now. You've got Hamilton, you've got Nuga, you've got Justin Webster. Like, these are guys who can score at the college level. I think they're, they're good now. Mike, uh, we know a slight shift here that uh, the win totals for college football were posted in a lot of places last week. UNLV put Under. up there at 
one and a half. Under. Under. <laughs> Under. Do you think they'll win a game this year? I do. I think they, they've got to get one. I think I don't have the schedule in front of me, but just you can't you can't go winless two years in a row. It's impossible. There's got to be some team on the schedule that they can beat. It's the second year under Arroyo. There's got to be a way that they can beat one of these teams. If you can get two, I think that's probably your baseline. If you get the three, that's progress. Is Tate Martell the starting quarterback in week one? That would be quite a story, right? I think if you're rooting for the best story, Tate Martell is your guy. I'm not sure that the starter is currently on the roster. I think if, uh, you know, if Arroyo does want to win that game this season, it's they would be very open to some, you know, one of these quarterbacks that we know is going to come into the transfer portal, you know, during training camp or you know, someone who loses out a, on a starting job elsewhere and is, you know, wants to play. They, they can probably get a better quarterback outside the program than they have inside the program at this point. So whether it's Tate Martell, which would be really interesting, or whether it's someone else that's not on the radar yet, um, I think there's a chance that it's someone from outside the program. Given the advantages that Tony Sanchez and that regime uh, handed to Marcus Arroyo with the practice facility and in some regards with the stadium, I mean, how comfortable is the administration at this point with the fact that realistically, I agree with you, three wins would be huge for this team in year two for Arroyo. You can't, I'm not going to knock Arroyo too much for the, the cause Tony Sanchez. Yeah. He handed you a, a, a practice facility and all that, but he didn't hand you a lot of good players. So that's Arroyo's working. You know, he's got to build it basically from the ground up again. Um, it's it's tough, yeah. It's that winless season last year. That's that's really the wrong foot to get off on uh, for a new coach. I don't know. It's it's weird. I, I think Desiree Reed Francois will be patient with him, but it's just such a bad way to start off your your tenure. It's yeah. I don't I don't know. It it feels weird to say that three wins you'd be celebrating, but I think that's where they are at this point. Uh I meant to ask you, do you have any idea, any more information on what happened to Nick Blake? I don't know specifically like what the reason is why he left. I know that it wasn't planned. I know Nick Blake was one of the – he was excited about the Kevin Kruger hire. Um, he, w- he wanted to stay at UNLV. He wasn't you know, considering transferring. Um, I did talk to Kevin Kruger, and he said you know, it was a combination of on-the-court and off-the-court uh, issues. And where it just became a situation where they, you know, they, it was a, he kept, he said it was a mutual decision. Um, how much of that is coach speak? You know, who knows? But uh, yeah, he did say it was a combination of, you know, on court and off court, you know, factors. So I'm not sure what the off court factors were, but I'm guessing that's probably the root of why Nick Blake is no longer at UNLV. Mike, let's get down to the real brass tacks of this conversation. Um, the The food of of Maine is the lobster roll. No. <laughs> no. What do we think of the lobster roll? No. no. What is no, wrong no, with the lobster no, roll? It no, is a sandwich. No seafood. seafood is a non-starter, period. I'm not going there. He won't even look and, at it. Yeah, and vacation Mike is he's comfortable, he's <laughs> relaxed, he's not trying, he's not doing anything new. Not trying anything out of the ordinary. 
He's just he's staying in his, his comfort zone. You hear me? So what How the- is vacation Mike different than home Mike then? Because that sounds exactly like home Mike. Yeah, but this one's not working. So he's like relaxed and calm like like you know, regular season Mike is you know, he's he's wound up and he's wired and you know, he's very tightly wound. But this Mike is he's very relaxed, he's listening to the birds, you know, it's a it's very He's, he's got peanut butter sandwiches lined up as far as the eye can see. He's not thinking about what he's eating next, you know? Okay, Mike, let's say you got a free lunch from anywhere in all of, like, Las Vegas. Where are you going? Free lunch anywhere. Because Jared has this coming to him. I would say I get, I get two choices. I would either go with the Hash House Chicken and Waffles. Or I would go with um, Outback Steakhouse. I knew it was going Outback Steakhouse. I, I actually, love that Outback. <laughs> I, I have an important question for you because I'm surprised you said chicken and waffles because you don't like to eat different foods together. So how do you eat your chicken nice. and waffles? Uh, well, I, I still like separate them. There's no syrup. I don't put anything on either the chicken or the waffles. But, uh, yeah, I mean... I'll I'll go back and forth from the chicken to the waffles. It's it's pretty good, and I I do like that. That's the only place I've ever had chicken and waffles, so I I don't know if that's like the best version of chicken and waffles. I'm sure there's other places that that do it, but uh, yeah, that would be one of my two picks. So you never eat in the same bite a piece of chicken and a piece of waffle. No, no, that that does not go together so much as like you don't want them to mix together at the same time, <laughs> but complementing each other. You know, from opposite sides of the plate, it's very good. Uh, doesn't Hash House cook bacon into their waffles? They do. I pull that out. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, yeah, I slice open the waffle the long way. You know, like I bisect what? it. What? And then I, I pull out the bacon and I eat that separately on the side. <laughs> I don't what, want to what, what other bacon and waffles together. <laughs> So, wait, what other things about vacation, Mike, do we not know? Uh, I mean, that's it. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. Like, the plan is to do as little as possible. Um, oh you know, I get, the, I get the box of cheese that's open. I got a Coke Zero, you know, every five minutes. Um, that's it, man. That's, <laughs> it, it, I'm happy. Just, I'm happy. That's all I can say. So, vacation, Mike, is happy. That's the difference. Yeah. No. Hmm. Yeah. Mike, uh, Mike has told me in the past he has no desire to travel to, like, new cities. You know what? Travel within, the like, the continental U.S. is, like, that's okay. I can do that. That's kind of fun. It's just the international travel. I, I, I don't think that's in the cards for me. <laughs> it's just too much. There's too much. <laughs> I just need Mike at one point in his life to be in a different country having to eat a different country's oh, cuisine. Oh, we got to send him to the Olympics. <laughs> Japan. Where are the Olympics? J- Japan, not yeah. known for, uh, you know, seafood. Yeah, seafood, not a big deal in Japan. Oh, You'll boy. be fine. <laughs> well, he oh, is Mike Kravala. He is Mike Kravala, enjoying his vacation, doing absolutely nothing. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Has there anybody... Is there ever been anybody you want a vacation with less than Mike Ramallah? I mean, yes, but for different reasons. Um, and Has there ever I, been I a will... person you like that you want a vacation with less than Mike Ramallah?
Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> uh, you, you know what the easy part about vacationing with Mike, though, is like, I could do everything I wanted to do and just be like, I'll meet you back at the hotel. Right? Like, I don't have to true. negotiate with that anyone over where I go or you know, what I do. It's not like, oh, you wanted to see that? No, no, no. I'll go, I'll go handle it. You split the cost of the room with me. Perfect. It's a vacation, and Mike just happens to be there. It's pretty much the same as vacation Mike. It's Mike, and he just happens to be on vacation. Adam, you're a cultured man. You've lived in this city for a long time. Where does Outback, like, and don't get me wrong, Outback Steakhouse, absolutely a fine meal, but where does it rank on your lunch, any option in the entire city of Las Vegas list? Um, You know how, like, when you go to sort statistics on a website, it'll be like, show 25 rows, show 50 rows, <laughs> show 100 rows? I'm not sure they have enough rows. I'm just impressed. Even though we learned he dissects his waffle to get the bacon out, I'm just impressed he would actually order something that had two different components and eat it. Even though he doesn't eat it together and pulls the bacon out, that's one of the most impressive Micromala food stories you've heard. All right, coming up next, Marc-Andre Fleury might finally win a trophy. Adam Candy for filling in today for Ed. Adam, we'll be back on Thursday, right? I think Ed'll be on a plane on Thursday. I will be here Thursday morning, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to talk about a uh, 2-0 series hole. Oh, man. So mean. I'm supposed to be the mean one around here. I'm just sticking no. by my prediction. That's all I was doing. No, he's hedging himself because you know he's got he's got the bet. Where oh, So I this see. way, he he's either right or he wins money. Both yeah. are good options. You're either right on the radio or you get to cash a ticket. That is that is well played. Um, so, Marc-Andre Fleury was named a finalist for the Vezina Trophy, uh, along with Andre Vasilevsky and Philip Grubauer, goalie they are facing, Colorado Avalanche. Those are the three finalists for the Vezina, and it is the first time that Fleury has been a finalist for the Vezina, so obviously he has never won it. Uh, the only trophy or award, individual award, that Fleury has won in his career was the Jennings trophy that he and Robin Leonard won like a month ago for having uh, allowed the fewest goals in the regular season um, to steal that back to steal a take from Shang Peng. Marc-Andre Fleury is a career compiler, and it's not that surprising that he hasn't been top three in Vesna voting until now. Well, this year, I'll say I think he absolutely deserves to be in the final three uh, and whatever you want to say about the rest of his career. He played the part this year. Vasilevsky belongs there. Grubauer's a joke. Uh, there's no way Philip Grubauer should be <laughs> part of this discussion. Like, it, like, it goes back to his goals against average, which we know is a garbage stat. And he also faced one less expected goal than every other goaltender in the league. I will say about Philip Grubauer what I said about Martin Brodeur, who was the goaltender for my Devils for as long as he was. He was made a lot better by the system. And Philip Grubauer is made a lot better by how good the Avalanche are defensively. That's uh, that's beside the point, though. Marc Andre Fleury deserves to be in the best in the top three. He? Do you think he's going to win it? I actually think he is. I do too. Yeah, because uh, Vasilevsky really fell off toward the uh, the end of the regular season. And I, honestly, if you had gone up there and put a deserving third like Connor Hellebuck uh, or Thatcher Demko or I don't know, I mean, there are a number. Of, 
UC Saros finished the season so well for Nashville. Thatcher so. Demko. It is, it's gotta be well. The the Golden Knights won the series, so it's not like he got eliminated by Thatcher Demko, but it's gotta feel at least a little bit better that Thatcher Demko was actually good at goaltending for the season after he became a superstar for four games in the playoffs. Oh God, of course. And <laughs> I mean, that was not only the view with the Golden Knights, but I mean the Canucks let Jacob Markstrom walk as yeah. well. So that you know, they knew what they were doing. Well, I don't think any team ever actually knows what they're doing with goaltenders, do they? It's sort of the the horror for general managers in the sport is what the hell do you do with goaltenders because they're so volatile from year to year. It's sort of like starting quarterbacks in the NFL where, you know, there's a certain level you can expect and then there's variance above and below. And there are only a handful of guys that you really think year after year that you can expect them to be truly great. Um, and it might be even less for goaltenders than for quarterbacks. Yeah. Like, and, and flurry Fleury's a good example. Just in his time in Vegas year one, he was awesome. Year two, he was about an average starting goaltender, maybe a little bit above. Year three, he was dreadful, and it's the reason they went and traded for Robin Leonard. And then year four, this this is like the best year of his career. So, like, Flurry's a great example of a guy you'd consider has been a good goalie for a very long time. Even he's had some very high peaks and valleys just in four seasons. True. Look, there aren't a lot of goaltenders that, you know, at the age of 36 are going to have their best season, right? Uh I do think it goes to show that the reduced season for Marc-Andre Fleury last year, when you take into account, you know, ha- dealing with his father's death and also, you know, the, you know, the shortened season, et cetera, et cetera, the rest did him well. I think if I was a general manager, I would never spend money on goaltenders. I would just try to have as many $750,000 AHL guys lined up to try him out throughout the season. Well... Then let's get Oscar Danska up here post-haste. Logan Thompson, bring him up. He's awesome. Three, 